I want to welcome everyone listening to us on the King's Cast. I want you to turn in your Bible, please, to Romans chapter 6. It's been, a, for some of us, it's been a, a week of Romans because um, we were studying Romans in our Bible school on Thursday and we've also been reading it as part of our Bible plan, just by, by um, coincidence, really. And uh, I wanted to uh, share a few thoughts from one of these, this great New Testament book with you today that I trust will uh, be a blessing to you. The title of my message today is, is Paul's Parables. I, we're very familiar with the idea of uh, Jesus using parables to explain things. We're familiar with that, aren't we? If you took all the parables out of the Gospels, they'd be significantly shorter. Jesus was aware that he wasn't trying to be a theologian, he was trying to explain to simple people simple truths, and uh, we're all simple people at the end of the day. So he, Jesus would, uh, rather than being a great theological lecturer, he would talk about the lilies in the field, he would talk about the seed, he would talk about the father and the son, and he used to uh, paint pictures that explained very complex things sometimes, and made them very, very simple so people would understand. What, what is may, not, may not have been so clear to you, or you may not have thought of it before, is that the Apostle Paul does something similar. The Apostle Paul does not tell stories like Jesus did, so, you know, stories of parables, but he does paint pictures to take very complicated, complex theological truths to make them very, very simple for people to understand. And just like Jesus did, of course, the pictures he paints are pictures from the first century, not from our century. So sometimes we have to, a little bit, we have to do a little bit of decoding of the pictures because they are for another generation. They're not for our generation. The details are not. But we can decode them and understand them. And so for everyone here who's thought to themselves, you know what, I'll just never understand the book of Romans. It's just too deep for me. I want to show you today that what Paul does is as he's explaining these great truths, he also pauses time and time again to paint a picture so that even the simplest of us will be able to understand the things of God. The difference between Jesus' parables and Paul's parables, I would say, is that Jesus' parables were about the kingdom, whereas Paul's parables or Paul's pictures tend to be about who the believer is in Christ and what Christ has achieved on their behalf. So hopefully this will make a bit more sense as we sort of go along here. Like Jesus, Paul used pictures particularly to explain the born-again Christian experience or the born-again status of the believer. How many of you know that you're not who you used to be? But by being born again, you've been transformed into something else. At one time, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says this, Will you please stop behaving like mere human beings? Sometimes you want to write back and say, well, 
you know, who do you think I am? I am a human being. But that's not what Paul thought about the believers. He thought they were something else. He thought they were indwelt by the Spirit and changed. And so, just for a few minutes today, here are a few of, I've thought of three of them, there may be more, but certainly there are three of them. Three parables or three pictures from Paul that talk about who you are as a believer and talk about what Christ has done in the life of the believer. Let me uh, invite you to have your Bible open at Romans chapter 6. And we'll look at a few of these. They're all in Romans today. Here is the first one. Number one, Paul creates a picture of a slave in the marketplace. A slave in the marketplace. A slave that needs to be freed from a cruel master. Let's look in Romans chapter 6 and uh, verse 16. And we'll just read a couple of verses here. You're with me? Paul says, Romans 6 verse 16, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Come down to verse 22. He says, now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. If you walk around Cambridge Market tomorrow or later on today or whenever the market opens up, you won't see slaves for sale there. You see some knockoff DVDs and you see a few bits of fruit and some clothes, but you won't see slaves. The people running the market might think they're slaves, but they're certainly not for sale. But in Paul's day, you could go and buy a slave. You know that? You go and buy a slave. If you had the money, if you had the resource, you could purchase a slave. And where would you go and purchase a slave? Well, in all manner of places, but you could purchase a slave from the marketplace. I remember many years ago being a big fan of the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe uh, before he got older. And, uh, but, but in that movie, there's, there's a classic scene where I think it's Oliver Reed is the, is the buyer. And uh, uh, Oliver Reed, a uh, big British actor, he walks down the line and he decides who he's going to buy. I think they put a mark on them or something like that, a bit of paint on them to say, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy you. In the New Testament, that's what happened. People bought slaves. And who did they buy them from? Well, I'll tell you who they bought them from. Other slave masters. They traded them. Here is Paul's first parable about the Christian life and about what Jesus has done for us. We used to be under the slavery of another slave master, the devil. 
He was our slave master. And more specifically, even kind of a bit deeper than that, not just the devil was our slave master, but we were actually slaves to sin itself. We were in slavery to our human nature. And there we are, a slave of the devil, a slave of our own human nature. You try to change your life. You try to make a New Year's resolution. It doesn't stick. You can't get free of your addictions. You can't get free of the bondage you're in. Paul says we were slaves to sin. Nothing we could do to get free of it. And then along comes another slave master. Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? And Jesus, I've never heard ever in my life a sermon where Jesus has been compared to Oliver Reed, ever before. So here it is for the first time. But Jesus is like Oliver Reed. He's walking along, looking at the slaves that are in bondage to another slave master. And he points at you, at you, and says, I want to purchase you. I don't know when he said that to you, but he said it to me on the 3rd of March, 1988. That's the day I gave my life to Christ. Whatever day it was that you gave your life to Christ, that's the day when you were standing in the market, when Jesus walked along and he put his mark on you and said, I want that one. And what is the price for you? Money, corruptible things, such as silver or gold? What's the answer? No, not with corruptible things, such as silver or gold, but by his own precious what? His blood. By his own precious blood as he purchased us. The people in the day of Paul might have got all a bit confused about what's all this about redemption. We've been redeemed. We've been, what does that mean? We've been redeemed. I've got no idea what that, I know that my Redeemer lives, but I've got no idea what that really means. I know I've been redeemed, but what does that mean? Redeemed means you've been purchased. And now you are purchased away from the power of darkness. Purchased out of the dominion of your sinful human nature. And you become as Paul writes right here, slaves of God. Slaves of righteousness. There's a very real sense in which actually we talk about, and I said this a few months ago, we talk about, Lord, you've set us free. Well, he has set us free from a cruel slave master, but we're not actually free. We're now slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. Can you say amen? So now, instead of being slaves to wicked behavior, now, by the grace of God, we are slaves to godly behavior. Hallelujah. We have been redeemed. We're no longer standing in line, chained to sin and chained to the devil, but he set us free by purchasing us with his very lifeblood. Hallelujah. So that's the first of Paul's simple parables. We are a slave in the market, but we've been set free. Here's another one. 
We are a convict in the courtroom. Go over to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, verse 5. Romans 4, verse 5. There's a very peculiar phrase. In Romans 4, verse 5, I want to draw your attention to it. It's the phrase, God who justifies the wicked. Can you see that? However, to the man who does not work, that means work for his salvation, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. We serve a God who justifies the wicked, makes the wicked just if I'd never been wicked. Go over to the next chapter, chapter 5, and we pick up there. Therefore, verse 1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now come down to verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Someone says, justification, that's a strange religious word. What does that mean? And you might think that, and you might like to know that 2,000 years ago they might have thought that too. But here is Paul's second picture. One was a slave master buying slaves. Here's his second parable, his second illustration. Someone in need of acquittal. Someone guilty as charged and in need of a very, very good lawyer. In need of a good advocate. The Greek word parakletos. Someone who stands in your defense like a lawyer in a court. And you're standing there. You're in the dock. You're guilty as charged. Who can help you? You've been caught red-handed. CCTV has now gone HD. It's definitely you. Definitely you. I love HDTV. I just don't have HD eyes. That's the problem. No, they've, they've, they've caught you. You're guilty. What can you do? And into your courtroom, in Paul's illustration, in Paul's parable, comes Jesus Christ. In the epistle of John, he calls him the, the advocate who stands alongside us. And Paul has the same idea here. He comes and he says, you know what? I'm here. I'm the lawyer. And everything that has been accused today is true. You'll know that in the book of Job, Satan is the part of the accuser. He's like the prosecuting counselor in the court. So he comes and he brings his accusations against you. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have lied. You've cheated. 
You've committed adultery in your heart. You've not always honored your mother and your father. You've failed the Ten Commandments, good and proper. And you look to your lawyer. What can your lawyer do? Because everything the accuser says is true. And it is a court of truth. And your lawyer, Jesus, stands before the court and says, I just want to say today that everything, everything that the prosecution has said today is true. Everything. In fact, this person is more of a sinner than even the prosecution has declared. But your honor, most wonderful judge, behold the holes in my hand. Behold the scars upon my head. Behold the holes in my feet and in my side. I have already taken the punishment for them. That is who I am as the lawyer today. Not to argue a case that they are innocent, because they're not. But to say someone has already taken the full blame for their sin. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Can you say amen? And we are justified by putting our faith in him. We are justified and gain access into the grace of God. And as many preachers have said over the years, justified just if I'd never sinned. So the first thing we are is a slave born out of the wicked slavery of Satan and sin and brought into the freedom of righteousness with God. The second thing we are is someone in a courtroom desperate for a good lawyer and in comes Christ to justify them. To make it as though they had never committed the crime. And the third parable of Paul that I see in the book of Romans is this. that We are like a child away from the family. Go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. Romans 5 and verse 10, it's the next verse that we were looking at. The apostle writes this. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The third parable is this. That God and man have fallen out. This isn't a legal uh, illustration like a court. It's not a slave trade like the first. This is more like a family dispute. You ever fallen out with someone in your family and you didn't see him a long time? Or at least you know someone who's had that experience. People are apart from each other and there's anger between them. Counselors try to reconcile them together, but how difficult it is. But what Paul says is this, 
that Jesus has reconciled us to God. We can't reconcile ourselves to God because we have nothing to offer him. But God can reconcile himself to us by forgiving us. And what does he do? He wants to draw us back to him. Not as a slave, not as someone free from the penalty of a crime, but as his child. This illustration is one from the home. God the Father wanting to bless and to draw back to himself his family. And you were a wayward child, weren't you? I don't mean in your own family, but you probably were. But generally, with God, you were a wayward child. And God says, no, no, I know you're wayward, but I so love you. I don't care what you've done. I'll pay the bill. And I just want you here with me. I want you here with me. And then we go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. And we see what happens when God is reconciling us. Bringing us out of the slavery of sin. We discover that he does this. He says, verse 15, Romans 8. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again. To fear. But you received the spirit of sonship or the spirit of adoption. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What you may not know is that in the Roman world, in many, in many cases... They actually adopted their own children. Did you know that? Today we would only adopt someone else's children. Someone else's biological children. But in the Roman world, they adopted their own children. The Jewish people had the bar mitzvah when a a son came of age. And there was something similar in the Roman world. They would adopt their child. And this is what they would say. And we know this from documentation at the time. There was a certain speech that the father would make. And he would say this. You are my son. Today, I have become your father. That sound familiar to you? Because that's in the Bible. The gospel writers, the apostles, they took that phrase and they spread it through the Bible. You are my son. Today, I have become your father. I think you find it especially in the book of Hebrews. And so they would adopt their own children. And this is the third truth. That God is calling his people back to himself, not as his slaves, not simply to forgive them and then send them off, but so they will be part of daddy's house. So they can have a relationship with God. We've been reconciled by God to himself. And just like that young man in the parable of the, uh, of the prodigal son or the lost son, as we come home, we're given the ring and the shoes and the cloak to say, you are now, absolutely, no price needs to be paid. You are now a son of this house. Or ladies, a child of this house.
The Romans only had, they only thought of sons. We are children of God. So these are the three things that Christ has done for us. Brought us out of the slavery of sin. He's brought us into relationship with him as a family. And he's washed us clean. Making it just as if I'd never sinned. So, how should this change us? This simple study in the book of Romans. Now really, we've just summed up what the whole book of Romans is about. In those three pictures. How should it change us? I thought of a few ways that maybe it should, it should change us. Number one, because we're not a slave to human nature, but a servant of God, we've been redeemed. You don't have to live like you used to live. Can you say amen? You don't have to live like you used to live. You've been freed. You are free. You are free to live in a godly way. Unfortunately, you're also free to live in an ungodly way. But you are free. You don't need any more prayer. You don't need another anointing. You don't need the preacher to come through town who's got some sort of bondage-breaking power in, in the prayer line. You are free. Because your chains have been taken off. I do not understand this Christianity where people believe that Jesus has freed them, but only a bit. And we need a bit more prayer to get us even more free. No! The book of Romans says you have been set free from sin. You know that old preacher's story about the, the bear that used to pace around inside a cage. And the cage was only small. And so he could only go so far. Only go so far. And finally, a group who felt that this was atrocious, this bear should be set free. They opened the door of the cage. And you know the story, don't you, fully well, that the bear, even though the door was open, he didn't go out of it because he was so used to walking four meters by four meters that he didn't see that the door was open. And I think that would be true for many of us. We're so used to the idea, well, I've got this problem, well, I've got this bit of my character, well, I've got this particular addiction, that we don't see the doors open. You just walk out of it. Live free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you. You need to know the truth, though. The truth doesn't set you free. You must know the truth. You must know that you are free. So that's one of the ways I think the book of Romans can help us to understand that we have been purchased. We're not waiting to be purchased. He's not going to purchase you sometime this year. You've moved from one slave master to another. Therefore, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, Romans 12. Live out this truth in your life. That's what... Paul says towards the end of Romans, live it out. These are the things that have happened. Now, live them out. You'll find them to be true experientially. Number two, having been redeemed, we also know we've been justified. We're not under the guilt and condemnation, but we can rejoice in the forgiveness of God. Lots of Christians are totally, utterly, 100 
100% forgiven, but they don't live like it. They walk around as though they are not forgiven. When they come to pray before God, there's still a sort of a bondage there. There's still a sort of a, a barrier there. They think the heavens are brass because of their sins, because they read that someplace in the Old Testament, not knowing that Jesus, when he ascended, punctured through the brassy heavens. I'm not praying for an open heaven. Heaven opened the day Jesus died. <laughs> not everyone believes that, but it's true. I'm not praying the heavens open. It says as Jesus was praying as he came out of the Jordan, the heavens were opened. And they're still open. No one shut them. No devil. Only bad thinking closes them in your mind. But we have an open heaven. Forgiven by God. Not having to, to uh, grovel. Not having to say, oh God, I'm such a wretch. I know you're a wretch. So am I. He knows that. But that's not what the terms of the agreement are. The terms of the agreement are that he has already died in our place. And if you're free, you should live like you're free. If the court has let you off, don't go living by its door. Don't skulk around the door of the courtroom thinking, do you know what? They must have made a mistake. Number three, having been redeemed, having been justified, let's not live at a distance. You are one of God's favorites. Did you know that? Part of his family. And we need to live like we're the children of God. I'm one of God's sons. Now listen, I don't recommend you go to work tomorrow and say, I just want you to know, by the way, I am the son of God. <laughs> Otherwise, you might need a lawyer. But you are the son of God. You are the daughter of God. You are a child of God. He is our father. There's no priest to go through. There's no curtain to go through. There's no day of atonement to go through. He is our father. So we should live like he's our father. That should do something to the way we walk. That should do something to the way we talk and think and live. He's our Father. We are favored by Him. Oh, I know we go through times of discipline. I know we go through times of difficulty. But we are favored by God. Hallelujah. Bought from the market. Set free from the court. Brought into the family. And the final thing we should do. So we should live in that victory. Live that victory out. Why are we more than a conqueror through him who has loved us? Because we didn't have to do the fighting. If you have to do the fighting, you're the conqueror. But if someone else went in and did the fighting for you and gave you the, gave you the medal, you're more than a conqueror. Why don't we read it? Let's go to Romans chapter 8 as we finish this. Romans chapter 8. And let's see some of these great truths as we read this just to finish. Hallelujah. 
What then, verse 31, shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Am I preaching to the empty chairs today? Come on. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. He who did not spare his own son, who gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? No one shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. By the way, those were all things on St. Paul's Facebook status at some point. No, he says, verse 37, even though we go through hardship, even though we may go through danger, even though we may go through hassles, this doesn't mean we've been separated from the love of God. No, he says, verse 37, in all these things, not in spite of them, not after them, but in all of those things. In your lowest day, in your lowest day, not after it. In your problem, not after your problem, but in your problem, in your danger, in your depression, in your struggle. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise God. If you're listening to us on the King's Cast, God bless you. Have a good day.